That's great. Uh, good morning. How are you guys doing today? I hope good. Better than Saturday? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Um, we are going through this series where we are studying who we are when no one's watching. That means we're talking about our character. You know, your character, um, it's the most important thing in God's eyes. You know, this, when we say that uh, we are working to become more like Christ, we're talking about our character. You know, the person that you really are. My father used to say that if you want to know a, a person, you have to watch them under pressure. Because when they're under pressure, their true self comes, comes up, you know, and, and, and that's your character. You know, so we're all uh, allowing God to work in our hearts to transform our character. So we've been studying um, these character traits that Jesus modeled for us uh, so the Holy Spirit will help us to become more like him. Today, I want to talk to you about um, one of the uh, traits that I consider most important in the character of a believer, which is endurance. See, endurance is defined as the power that you have to withstand storms and continue in a predetermined direction. See, we all face storms in our lives. You know, at some moment in life, oftentimes more than one, you're going to face storms. And some people, a storm will derail them completely. They will change their direction or stop them in their tracks, you know, or destroy their lives. You know, some people just, you know, will turn into something that will put them to sleep and not feel the storm. But endurance will give you the power to go through this storm in the same direction that you predetermined. So when it comes to our spiritual life, it means that you will continue to press on to Jesus regardless of what happens. No matter the cost, you will continue to go through. Now, um, usually what we will face in life are two types of storms. Uh, one of them is temptation that makes us fall into sin and, and, and the chaos and messes that sin produces in our lives. That's a set of storms. The other one is the pain and suffering that comes in a fallen world, sometimes of our own doing, sometimes for the doing of the people that it's around us that we love. But endurance will, will give you the power to go through those storms and continue to press on to Jesus. Um, now, you might wonder, well, how do you do that, when, especially when things are really, really hard? I believe that there is a concept that because don't, we don't fully grasp it, even though we read it in the Bible, we preach it constantly, we actually sing it all the time, um, since we don't keep it in the front in our minds, endurance becomes really hard. This is a concept that I call the key to endurance. This is why I named this message the key to endurance. And even though it's taught in many places in the Bible, I, I chose this verse that we're going to come back to a few times during today um, that explains it really well. So we're going to read it. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to dive into a few things that will help us understand this endurance. Uh, Philippians 3 verse 12 says, Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Let's pray. Father, we, we just thank you so much for your love. And I know, Father, that um, 
Many of us here are going through storms right now, and some of us are about to get into a storm. So we need you, Lord. We need you. We need your word to work in our hearts. We need to be transformed, and we need to be reminded at all times of these truths that we're going to see today so that we are going to have this power that you can give us to endure through the storms that we're going to face. We trust you, Lord, so we're just going to open our heart, put it in your hands, and, and trust that you're going to do what needs to be done in us today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, as many of you know, we, Karina and I have um, four children. Well, they're all adults now. Uh, we still call them children. Isn't that funny? Um, I know they do behave like children sometimes, but, <laughs> but, but they are adults. And... Um, what we have tried to do since they were very little is to be very loving with them. You know, I, I believe that's uh, an inheritance of my father. My father was a very loving man. Uh, he constantly hugged us and, and constantly asked us, do you know how much I love you? You know, all the time. And not only said it, but showed it in his actions. So, so we tried to do the same thing uh, in our home. And I think that all parents at some point will come to this conundrum that is to show to your kids that, you know, when it comes that balance between loving them and parenting, you know, that they understand that your love is not conditional to their behavior, but their behavior is important. You know, it's like in, in our home, we were very loving, but there were boundaries and there were consequences. And, and it, it, at some points, it becomes a little blurry to them, whether if you love them all the time or only when they behave. Right? So through comments that sometimes they, they made to us, especially when they started becoming teenagers and we would have frictions and tensions and at some points they would come back and apologize to us and, and the wording that they used would, would show us that they somehow connected our love to, to their behavior. So we would then have to explain to them, I love you not because you behave well or because things are easy between us. I love you because you're my son or my daughter, you're mine, and I will always love you. Our life would be a lot easier if you understood why we set boundaries, you know, why are there consequences, but our love is not going to change. And I don't know if you relate to this, but I could not understand the love that my parents had for me until I had kids. You know, and then I understood how, you know, even though they sometimes say and do things that hurt you, your love for them does not change. And then, of course, it dawned on me that that is exactly what the love of God for us is like, but in a more perfect way. And amazingly enough, you know, that's a concept that a lot of Christians have a very hard time assimilating and living by. See, I, I don't know what um, your story of salvation is. You know, I think that we're all different. We were all saved in a very different way. You know, so if we heard all your stories, we would hear the variety of stories. But what I do know is, you know, my, my experience as a pastor is that uh, a large number of people were saved when they were in the middle of a mess, you know, of a storm, of, of very dark times. And some others were saved when they were completely in the world without even giving a thought to God, and God saved them. But the problem for a lot of us is that we thought that being saved was the method in which we were no longer going to be in a mess. 
You know, because we were saved, we would be immediately transformed. We thought salvation brings sanctification. So, you know, I'm a new creature, so nothing is going to affect me anymore. Now, if you've been reading the Bible for a while, you know that that's not how it works. But there is people that actually think that. You know, I was uh, once teaching a class that we called Introduction to Community of Faith, or Comunidad de Fe in Mexico. And, and, and I said, you know, to, to, to the group that was there, I said, so you have placed your faith in Jesus, so now you have been instantly justified. You are saved. And now your sanctification starts, and it's going to last for the rest of your life. You know, you're going to defeat some temptations, but new ones will come, and, you know, we'll have to struggle with it. And, and a young man raised his hand and said, like, what? what did you just say? Do you mean I accepted Jesus and I'm still going to be tempted with things? I was like, yep. <laughs> it's never going to stop, you know. But I want you to look at, you know, uh, what Paul says in this passage, because it speaks to that. See, Philippians 3.12, I'm going to read it again. It says, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, you know, that I am already fully mature. But I press on to make it my own, you know, I'm, I'm pressing towards that goal because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, why does Paul have the need to keep pressing on in pursuit of Jesus so passionately? You know why? Because he knows his own heart. He knows our own heart. You know, he knows the heart of, of, of the believers that he came in contact with. You know, I, I don't know what were his battles, but he knows we all have battles. We're all dysfunctional, and even though we have been saved, there are residues of our sinful nature that we'll continue to struggle with for a long time. I don't know about you, but to me it's a great comfort that Paul wrote those words, not that I have already obtained this. You know, if there was a person that pursued Jesus with more passion than anyone else in the, in, in the New Testament was Paul, and yet he acknowledges that he's still struggling. There are still areas in his life that he needs to grow in, and, and he just keeps pressing after Jesus. See, if you think about this verse in terms of your personal struggles, I don't know what yours are. We all have particular things that you know, we're weaker against them than other people, and they're different for each one of us. Okay, I don't know which ones they are, but if you think about them, you know, the implication of what Paul just said in that verse is there is a right way and a wrong way to fight against sin. The, the wrong way would sound something like this. I have to get this under control. I have to have more willpower to manage this situation. See, we try to tame our sin. We try to put it under control. That's the wrong way, according to Paul. The right way is press on to Jesus. And after you have done that, then you have to press on some more. And you have to keep pursuing Jesus no matter what. Just listen to the words of the same, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Pay careful attention to what he's saying because this is very interesting. He says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, he said that it is beholding the glory of the Lord, you know, keeping our eyes on the glory of Jesus, that we are transformed. Keeping our eyes on Him. And he says, we are going to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, which means little by little. 
You're going to be transformed by whom? By the Holy Spirit. You're going to be transformed into his image. Your character is going to be transformed into his image the more that you behold his glory. So what Paul is saying is, if you have been broken in Christ, then you must keep pursuing Christ so that his power will, will break more areas of, of bondage in your life. So how do we defeat sin? By pressing into Jesus, knowing him better, following him with all our hearts. See, if we broken people go to Jesus with faith, we are going to receive grace enough to persevere in him because he is enough. The Bible tells us that he is all that we need. He is enough to change us. But on top of that, the Bible says that Jesus knows our struggles. You don't have to. He knows that you're struggling with certain things. He knows that you have certain weaknesses. He knows the, the temptations that you're fighting against. So it makes absolutely no sense for us to try to deny them, to try to cover them, to pretend that they are not happening. See, in Christ, we have the grace that gives us the freedom to acknowledge that we're struggling with things in front of other people. It is only when you are honest and acknowledge these things that you allow God to work in your heart and change it. And then allows you to direct other people to the only source of healing and forgiveness, which is the work of Jesus Christ at the cross and his resurrection. If, you, if you're just trying to pretend that nothing is wrong, you don't even have the knowledge that you need to direct them to the right place because you're not going there yourself. Because you know, what is the most wonderful thing about this grace? The fact that the Bible tells us that it never lets go of you. Once Jesus has given you this grace because you placed your faith in him, the grace will always chase you. He made you his own, regardless of what was in your past or how did your present look at the time, and he's going to continue chasing you for the rest of your life. And, and, and I want you to see this in a large scale because then you'll understand fully what this means. I want us to study very fast Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. Listen to his words. This is Paul again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's saying, blessed be God, because through Jesus, he blessed us in every possible way and where it really counts, in the heavenly places. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. See, I don't know why this happens, but um, there, are, there are certain people that the longer they spend in church, the harder it becomes to believe this truth. See, they have been playing the role of the good Christian for so long that the idea that they were chosen to be holy and blameless, you know, before God, way before they started trying to earn it, it's almost offensive. You know, in our flesh, we believe that our holiness is the result of our spiritual effort. It's what we do. It's how hard we try. Old school theologians um, had a Latin phrase that was sola gratia. 
which means grace alone. They said grace alone saved you. Grace alone transforms you. Grace alone one day is going to glorify you. And intellectually, we understand sola gratia. But you know how we live? Sola self-sufficiency. We think it's us. We think it's, it, it's our effort. But that's not what the Bible says. Look at how Paul continues there in Ephesians. In verse 5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as son through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace which, uh, with which he has blessed us in the blessed. Look, if you're one of those people that believes that there is absolutely no way that Jesus can love you, as the Bible says that he can love you, that you will never be able to have this profound relationship with him, that you will not be able to follow him as you should because there is something in your past that is terrible or because you're continuing to struggle with certain things, this passage should give you great encouragement because what we just read is that God rescued you from where you were, not because of your good deeds, not because all of a sudden you realize what I'm doing is wrong, I have to repent, I have to go. No. It says, to the praise of his glorious grace. He saved you to the praise of his grace. And this is the same grace that we see in action when we see God calling David his own. You know, when David was a, a young shepherd, taking care of the sheep of his father in the fields, very innocent boy. And God said, you're mine. I claim you as my own. But later on when David becomes an adulterer and a murderer, and God says, you're still mine. I claim you as my own and you're still mine. Think of when did he call Moses. He got murdered a soldier, an Egyptian soldier. He started arguing with God about his purpose. And God said, you're mine. I claim you as my own. Paul, you know, the writer of these words, chasing Christians to drag them to jail or kill them. Jesus stopped them on the way and says, you're mine. So this is why, you know, Paul later on wrote in Philippians 3 that his best efforts to be good, to be a good Christian, were like filthy rags in comparison to the righteousness that he received by grace. So if you pay attention when you read the Bible, you're going to see that the people that God used in great manner in the Bible, many of them have these horrible pasts. They were liars, they were cheaters, murderers, adulterers. Why do you think that is? Because the Bible is primarily about God's grace. Not about how great human beings are. It's for the glory of his grace. It is just an amazing truth that the God of the universe decided to claim as his own sinners like you and me. And that this is he loves us. And that he's not going to stop loving us. Look how he finishes the passage in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Through what were we redeemed? Our good deeds, our work, our repentance? No. It says they're by his blood. Why were we forgiven? 
Because we finally realize how wrong we were. No, it says there, to the riches of his grace, because of the riches of his grace, you were forgiven. Which is something very ironic. You know why? Because it is ironic and counterintuitive. Do you know what is our, our, our tendency when we fall into sin? You know, when we're tempted and we fall and we realize that we just did, we run away from him. Which the only thing that causes is more emptiness in your heart. See, if what you want is joy, fulfillment, peace in your heart, you have no other option. You have to press on to Jesus. Do you remember when um, in John chapter 6, the crowds get uh, offended by the teachings of Jesus? Because he tells them that they are not going to get eternal life unless they eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. When he says that, all the crowd goes like, Ew, what? What did he say? Eat what? And the Bible says that many of them no longer walked with him. In Hebrew, they abandoned the discipleship. And and Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Are you going to leave me too? You want to go? And Peter, who usually impulsively says nonsense and makes mistakes, that day he has enough wisdom that he says, Lord, and to whom would we go? You are the only one that has word of eternal life. Where would we go? See, any other place that you would go to when you make a mess of your life would be a bigger disaster. But the amazing thing is that even if you try to run away, His grace will catch up with you. And granted, sometimes His grace shows up in the form of a large fish that swallows you up, keeps you in the belly for three days, and then pukes you up on the beach. No? Anyone relates to the grace catching up with you? But it's just, you know, it's, it's joy to my heart to know that I cannot escape His sovereign love. No matter what, I cannot escape because his grace clings on to me. And the Bible says that he's not going to let me go. So why then do we lack endurance? Why, why do we stop pressing on to him? It's very simple because we try to manage our life in our own strength. We try to do it by human effort, which Paul calls foolishness. So Galatians 3, verse 3 says, How foolish can you be? After starting your new life in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Any transformation that's going to happen in your life is going to come through the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul, you know, earlier in, in, in Philippians 2 says, It is God who provides the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. It's not on your power. It's not on your desire. It's his desire and his power that pushes you to go back to him. Over and over and over again, the Bible says, yes, you do have work to do. But you know what that work is? Press on to Jesus. Chase him. Go after him. Day after day after day. We obviously, you know, need to develop a life of discipline, like Pastor Mark taught a couple of weeks ago, which is... The objective of that discipline is to know Jesus more fully. But you should never forget that he sought you out first. He loved you first. 
You didn't choose him. He chose you. He decided to save you. And when you remember these things, the power to endure through your sanctification will come to your life. I want to read that same verse again, and I want you to pay attention to the tense of the verbs. It says, now, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It says, I press on in present tense, because Jesus made me his own in past tense. And then if we skip a few verses and we go to verse 16, he says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. He says, you have to start living life the way that you have learned up until now that you understand that you're my own. But I want you to understand that the imperative of obedience is based on the indicative of the gospel. It's saying live well, but don't forget that Christ has already made you his own. These are wonderful news that God keeps loving us and giving us power and, 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 and transforming us in spite of our struggles and in spite of our sufferings. So the question for all of us is, are we going to endure through our struggles in pursuit of Jesus Christ? That means, are you really going to put the work of continuing to pursue Jesus? Are you going to do something about it? Are you going to adopt the disciplines that will bring you to him over and over and over and will develop the habit of always going to him first? There is work to be done. And I have said this many times. If you just come here every Sunday, you know, and don't do anything else, church as a hobby is very boring. You have to do something. There's, there are things that need to be done. You know, are you going to press on to Jesus or are you going to allow that adversity Problems, temptations, storms stop you. See, I'm never going to forget the commentary that um, David Hubbard, David Hubbard was the president of the Fuller Seminary, the largest interdenominational seminary in the United States. And he made a commentary to one of the most famous passages in, in the book of Isaiah. Uh, this passage hangs in the walls of many Christians, including ourselves. We have it in our bedroom, actually. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 30 and 31, says this. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. See, David um, Hubbard says that we should leave those three words, soar, run, and walk, you know, one day at a time depending on the circumstances that we're facing. Sometimes, you know, believers are going to soar on wings like eagles. Uh, I didn't know what that meant, so I had to study what he was talking about when he said those words, Isaiah. See, turns out, Bert's expert tells us that um, there are three different types of uh, flight that birds do, you know, three different methods of flying. The first one is called flapping. They're, they flap their wings, you know, and that's what keeps them in the air. You know, through flapping the wings at all times, you know, there are some birds that all they can do is flap their wings, and that's how they defeat the force of gravity, and it keeps them up there. Uh, it, it's not very elegant, and it requires a lot of effort. 
Okay? The second one is called gliding. There are some birds that have the ability to, you know, reach a certain height, you know, in a certain speed, and then all they do is smoothly glide in downward direction. It looks very elegant, very nice, but it doesn't last very long because they're always going downward. And then soon enough, they're going to have to start flapping their wings again and get up against some height so they can glide again. But there's a third type that is called soaring. Very few birds can do this, such as the eagles. See, the wings of the eagles are so strong that they, it, they can sustain them in updrafts of hot air. There are these thermal winds that ascend vertically from the earth so that the, the, the eagles, without moving a single feather, can reach incredible heights and then come down at speeds above 80 miles an hour without moving a single feather, without flapping a single time. That's what soaring means. They're not doing anything and they're just ascending. Okay, so what Isaiah is saying is those who hope in the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, there will be times when they are going to soar like an eagle where all you have to do is let yourself get carried away by the gust of the Holy Spirit, you know, and, and then you're just going to feel like you're soaring spiritually. And, and I don't know if you've been there sometime, but it's amazing. You know, because all of a sudden you just, you know, God listens to your prayers. You can hear him speak clearly. You know, he's using you in great ways. You know, people are being touched through you because God is using you. You know, all of a sudden you have power over, over temptations and you're living in a different way. And you just feel like you're soaring and it's amazing. And if you are soaring at this time, you have to be very thankful. You have to try to keep this communion with God so that the Holy Spirit keeps carrying you away in His Spirit. But never for one moment suppose that it is because of your strength or your doing. It is the Spirit that does it. Now, there's other times when we're not really soaring like an eagle. All we can do is run and not grow weary. You know, when you are in this situation, it seems like your spiritual life takes a lot of effort. You're not seeing much happening around you. You don't see many miracles, you know, but, but, but you persist and, and you're determined because you know you're running the good race. And I've been there, you know, it's, it, it's frustrating, but always remember, even if you're frustrated, God is pleased with your obedience. Just keep running. And just a word of advice, never try to artificially produce a spiritual ecstasy. It, there's people that make that mistake. They confuse their emotions with their relationship with God. And they think that if the Spirit doesn't come and touches them and makes them feel something and they cry, then the Spirit wasn't there. That's not how it works. You just have to keep pressing on to Jesus, even if it doesn't feel like something is happening in your life. Just like Paul, keep, keep running. But there are times in the life of believers when because of pain, because of fatigue, because of failure, all we can do is walk and not be faint. Or all we can do is say, Lord, I'm not feeling very fruitful. I'm really not feeling your presence right now. You know, I'm reading my Bible and I'm not listening to anything, but I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep pressing on to you even if it's just one step at a time and I'm going to keep walking. 
If you read the Gospels, you're going to see how Jesus experienced the three things that Isaiah mentions there. You know, there were times in his life where he was soaring like an eagle. I mean, just read the Gospels. Like, imagine the, the Mount of Transfiguration. When all of a sudden, Jesus allows his glory to come through and his divinity to be shown and he shines brighter than the sun. I mean, can you imagine having been there? Or, or, or being present among the crowd of people that saw him called Lazarus, come forth! And, and the power that brought Lazarus to life and be present there in such a miracle. Or, or, or I don't know if I would have liked to be in this one because I get seasick, but being in the boat with the disciples when Jesus walked on water, you know, in the middle of a raging storm and he's completely at peace just walking on top of the water. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to be a witness to that? He was soaring. But there were, sorry, other moments in his life where life wasn't that easy. And all he could do was run. And he could run. You know, think, think of, for example, the, 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 the time when he comes to Jerusalem and he's trying to bring them to him, but they reject him and he's weeping over his own people who don't recognize him. Or when he realizes how slow his disciples are to understand what he's trying to teach them. They're arguing among themselves who's the greatest. Or the opposition that the spiritual leaders of his own people present to him the whole time he's trying to save them. He just ran, kept running and running and it was tiring and, and it must have been frustrating to him but he just kept obeying God. But when the time came to walk towards Calvary and they put that cross on his back. All who could do is walk. And he fell and got up again. And, and the load was so heavy that somebody else had to carry the cross for him, but he just kept walking and walking one foot in front of the other one. And, and, and just remember that when, when you're in a situation like that, walking is enough. Walking pleases God. Just think of Jesus. You know, Jesus kept walking and he got all the way to Calvary and, and, and paying an incomprehensible price, achieved the most important victory for his children in the history of humankind. And he did that walking. So when you find yourself in the midst of adversity and pain, remember walking also counts. Don't stop. I confess to you that a few months ago, um, our family went through one of the hardest times that we have gone through because of the situation of our sons who, you know, lost their sight, their two boys. And the tension and the problems that, that, that put on everyone in the family, their sisters, his mother, myself. And, and, and for a while, I, uh, you know, I felt exhausted. I felt distracted. I kept going to, to, to my Bible and to do my devotionals and there were days when I walked away and didn't remember exactly what I had read. But I remember, you know, how when life seems darkest, but you keep going, all of a sudden, God's light shines in your darkest moments. One Monday morning, I went to my devotional, and the devotional was, was titled, An Anchor for Your Soul. 
And it took me to Hebrews 6.19. Let me read that verse to you. I had read that verse a hundred times. And it had never spoken to me like it spoke that day. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. See, that verse says that you and I are anchored upwards to God who is sitting at his throne at the Holy of Holies in heaven, the real one. You know, the one that they built on earth was a shadow from the one that was in heaven. They were instructed to build it like the one that is for real in heaven. God is sitting there at his throne, and you and I are anchored to him. So even when the storms rage around us, and, and the fury of the wind sometimes knock us down, Remember, you are anchored to God. I mean, just imagine that your soul is directly connected to God as an anchor. So it doesn't matter what happens, he's got you. He's got a grip on you. And remember, his grip on you is a lot stronger than you grip on him. See, he's counting on himself to bring you safe home. He's not expecting you to do this. He's doing it for you. I can tell you that continue to going forward with the things that God keeps putting in my heart as the enemy tries to rob me of my joy, you know, kill my dreams, destroy the sense of purpose that I have for our church is what has brought me to my knees more often than anything else. And at the moments when life became darker, God came true. Endurance comes when you remember he already made you his own and he anchored you to himself so remember see the the thing with with anchors is that they are designed specifically to withstand storms and you're anchored to the strongest anchor in the history of the universe so God already made you his own. He's not going to let you go. So endure. Keep going to him. Live with faith. Pray with power because you are safe in his hands. He's never going to let you go. So trust him. And when things look bad, when things look sad, when the day looks dark, run to him. Press on to him. And the light will shine in your life. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, I know that many of us are caring with a lot of things. And many of us are about to. So I'm just going to ask you, Father, that um, you allow this word to truly penetrate in our hearts that we really remember how your love is unconditional, that you love us the way we are right now, not a future version of us, but us, and that you have anchored us to yourself. Father, remember, help us remember at all times that you are there for us, that you are at hand, that you are near, and you're just a prayer away. Help us to develop the habit, Father, of always running to you and trusting that you're always going to have our back.
Help us, Father. We need you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.